0: Let your Let your Let your will be Good morning. Last week, Ian looked at the central theme of the Sermon on the Mount, of Jesus coming to fulfill the law and telling his hearers that kingdom living consists of a radical righteousness, a heart righteousness made possible as we live by the indwelling Spirit, as his disciples. Jesus follows this challenging statement with six examples of what this kingdom life will look like in down-to-earth, everyday human existence, in your life and mine. Today we're going to look at the first of those examples dealing with the law against murder. Remember the verse Ian highlighted from the text last week. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the very helpful point that Ian made was to quote him. He, Jesus, wasn't demanding a greater obedience, but a deeper obedience. So let's read our passage for today. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny." Before we get to the text, it's important to examine the word righteousness, which in Greek is the word dikaiosyune. Its rendering in English as righteousness is unhelpful to us, and it's not the best translation of the word. Understanding this word dikaiosyune ku will help us to see that deeper obedience is much more than just doing the right thing, which of course is what the Pharisees excelled at. When we hear the word righteousness, we can immediately think of being perfect, having to measure up to some code or standard which God meets but which we can't possibly attain to. We often associate righteous with the negative term self-righteousness, a distasteful and unappealing description of a person who thinks they're morally superior to others. Theologian Fleming Rutledge says, the meaning of the word righteousness in Hebrew, however, is a world away from our idea of legalism or moralism. When we read in the Old Testament that God is just and righteous, the meaning is much more like a verb than a noun, because it refers to the power of God to make right what has been wrong. When the Hebrew word is translated into Greek in the New Testament, it becomes dikaiosyune and is usually translated as righteousness. Rutledge suggests that a much more accurate translation of this word is rectification, the act of making something right. Now we don't normally use this word, but most often we might hear it in the context of someone having done something wrong to someone else. So let's suppose little Johnny stole a toy from his next-door neighbor, little Sandy, and Johnny comes home and Mom finds this toy which she knows is not his. She calls him out on this and he confesses that he stole it from Sandy. She could say, Johnny, we need to rectify this situation, meaning we need to make this right. You and I will go to Sandy's house and you'll confess to her what you did and return the toy to her and maybe you can offer to do her chores for her for the next week to show her you really do care about her. Rectification, making right, is taking action to repair or mend something that is broken. It's not so much that God is righteous as that he does righteousness. Again, in the words of Rutledge, righteousness is the action of God in making conditions and relationships right. So this deeper righteousness that Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount is an active rectification of what is wrong, making conditions and relationships right. And we all know that involves much more than just checking off boxes of saying the right things or making an outward show of something. To make a broken relationship truly right is going to deeply involve the whole heart. So, having said this, let's turn to the passage. In each of these six sections in chapter 5, Jesus begins with only slight variations of this following phrase to introduce each topic. You have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you. Jesus is not saying the law of Moses doesn't matter, but that his words deepen the intent of the law and broaden it. What the law had come to mean over time was that if you according to the scribes and pharisees did not commit murder then you could check off that you'd kept that law but the law had never been just about outward obedience in the old testament i mean if you read the prophets again and again they address the matter of the heart and express god's displeasure with a mere outward obedience As Ian said last week, for example, the prophet Isaiah starts out talking about how God is displeased with Judah's multitude of sacrifices, use of incense, and meticulously kept religious festivals, all acts of outward obedience to the law, but to God they were detestable because the people were not attending to the deeper whole heart issues, like seeking justice for the oppressed and ignored, watching out for orphans and widows. Ian reminded us of the words of the prophet Ezekiel last week. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And Micah wrote, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. A cry from the very heart of God. God had always cared about the state of his people's hearts. Jesus was not taking one thing away from the law, but deepening the understanding of the great scope of the law. So, in our passage today, Jesus addresses not just murder, but the underlying attitudes, the heart roots of murder, anger, insults, and contempt of another person. These poison roots are what causes us to speak to others and treat others in ways that make us just as liable to judgment as if we had murdered them. We don't have time today to get into the fact that anger is not always wrong, but it deserves a little clarification. Now, God describes himself as slow to anger, a positive aspect of his character right up there with his being merciful and gracious. The thing is, God's anger is always an expression of his love. He is angry justly at whatever has broken, twisted, enslaved, and destroyed his beloved creation, which includes each of us. This anger is an expression of his righteousness, which, remember, is the power he has to make right what has been wrong. And there are times when anger is, for us, the right response to something. If someone is in danger from someone else, for example, or if a group of people is being exploited or abused. But the anger that we usually deal with in our lives does not stem from such a loving care and concern for another human being. John Stott says... The reference of Jesus, then, is to unrighteous anger, the anger of pride, vanity, hatred, malice, and revenge. God knows that good relationships are so foundational to the health and welfare of every human being. Science bears that out. I just read a Harvard study about aging that concluded that maintaining good relationships is the best predictor of happiness and health as people age, absolutely vital to each one of us. So if we're honest with ourselves, most of our anger is a result of the things that Stott lists and that James would put under the heading of passions in his epistle. Pride. We think we deserve something we're not getting. Vanity. How can anyone even think to cross or thwart my very important, certainly more important than yours, ego? Hatred. Well, that needs no explanation. Malice, harboring a deep desire for bad things to happen to someone else. And revenge, refusing to be satisfied until someone else pays for what he or she did to me. Now, these are the kinds of sin Jesus is addressing here, the things we find really hard to look at and admit to ourselves. These are the often subtle yet polluted streams that can lead to despising and belittling someone as to make them nothing in our eyes. And making something nothing is what murder is. I want to read part of a children's story about two friends, Frog and Toad, that illustrate this so powerfully. The author is Arnold Lobel. The Dream. Toad was asleep and he was having a dream. He was on stage and he was wearing a costume. Toad looked out into the dark. Frog was sitting in the theater. A strange voice from far away said, Presenting the greatest toad in all the world! Toad took a deep bow. Frog looked smaller as he shouted, Hooray for Toad! Toad will now play the piano very well, said the strange voice. Toad played the piano, and he did not miss a note. Frog, cried Toad, Can you play the piano like this? No, said Frog. It seemed to Toad, That frog looked even smaller. Toad will now walk on a high wire and he will not fall down, said the voice. Toad walked on the high wire. Frog, cried Toad. Can you do tricks like this? No, peeped Frog who looked very, very small. Toad will now dance and he will be wonderful, said the voice. Frog Can you be as wonderful as this, said Toad, as he danced all over the stage. There was no answer. Toad looked out into the theater. Frog was so small that he could not be seen or heard. Frog, said Toad, where are you? There was still no answer. Frog, what have I done? cried Toad. Then the voice said, the greatest Toad will now shut up screamed toad frog frog where have you gone toad was spinning in the dark come back frog he shouted i will be lonely i won't read the rest of the story but suffice it to say that toad wakes up after this scare and cherishes his friend frog Jesus says that if we are angry and insult someone, saying raka, which in Biblical Greek means empty-headed, basically calling someone a nothing, a nobody, worthless. And I'm sure you can all think about the profanely equivalent words that are used today. If we call someone these things, we are as liable to be judged as if we'd murdered. And Jesus continues on. If we say, you fool, which is the Greek word moros, from which we get moron, showing contempt for the heart and character of a person, we are liable to the fires of hell. That's pretty serious talk. All the words about judgment are not meant to have us compare which is worse, saying raka or moros. The point is that the judgment for any of these actions against our neighbor is just as severe as that for murder itself. In short, we have all been guilty of murder. Harboring these evil attitudes sets in motion more than just relational trouble. To hold on to 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 retain and to nurse anger is to wave an invitation in the face of the evil one to come and wreak havoc. As Paul says in Ephesians, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, give no opportunity to the devil. However, embedded in this dire warning are some positives. And the first is that Jesus is saying No one's a nobody, a nothing, a moron. No one is beyond his saving and welcoming into his kingdom. No one. All deserve respect as those he's created and loves. And the second positive is that he's showing us how needy we are. He's giving us a chance to recognize how poor in spirit we ourselves are. And as we move on in the passage, Jesus follows this alarming heart scan, as it were, with a couple of positive examples of how the kingdom people, those walking around with the new hearts he gives, can work righteousness, can make right what has been wrong, repairing what we have damaged. First, Jesus sets the scene at the most holy moment in the ritual life of a faithful Jew. He's entered the temple of Herod, and he's offering a gift to God at the altar. To put it in terms that we'd better understand, think of some of the most sacred moments in your life. Worshiping God on a Sunday morning, taking communion, getting married before God, welcoming a baby into the world, burying a beloved parent or a sibling or a spouse, being baptized, offering a sacrificial sum of money to help the needy. So what if while you're going forward with your cash or check for the offering basket, you realize you've offended a brother or sister? You pocket that offering, turn and go find that brother or sister and make it right. In the deeper heart obedience Jesus is showing us, making a relationship right is important enough to put off giving something to God. The prophet Hosea says in the Message Translation, I'm after love that lasts, not more religion. I want you to know God, not go to more prayer meetings. After you make things right, then gladly give your offering to God. Dallas Willard poses some really great questions about this, which we can discuss with our community groups. Now, just think of what the quality of life and character must be in a person who would routinely interrupt sacred rituals to pursue reconciliation with a fellow human being. What kind of a thought life? What feeling, tones, and moods? What habits of body and mind? What kinds of deliberations and choices would you find in such a person? When you answer these questions, you will have a vision of the true, righteous beyond that is at home in God's kingdom. Of power and love. So Jesus' next illustration depicts someone who's in a legal battle with another who's not called a brother this time, but an adversary, an enemy. And today it would probably look like someone suing us. Jesus says to come to terms quickly. Don't allow an estrangement from someone to drag on. Deal with it right away, putting things right as much as it's in your power to do. Jesus knows that broken relationships only fester, and bitterness only wears a deeper groove of malice into one's soul over time. Quickly make amends, yes, even with one who would seem to be your enemy. Now, we aren't responsible for how the other person responds. They might not forgive you or work toward reconciliation from their side. We can only do what we can do and must leave the other person to God, who alone can change a heart. And yes, it means that sometimes we will look like the fool in the relationship and may suffer mocking. So much better that than dealing with the destruction of one's life that Jesus warns about here. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So think about these examples and then compare Jesus's vision of the kingdom man or woman with the picture of someone who just tries to keep his list of things I must do to be right before God checked off by avoiding murdering. It's almost laughable, isn't it? It's like a three-dimensional vision of a flourishing man or woman compared with a flat cardboard cutout of a stock villain in a child's fairy tale. Jesus means for us to be these people obeying deeply from a heart of love, full of his spirit, flourishing, demonstrating a humble courage and a God-given creativity to work toward reconciliation and healing. And I challenge us, let's examine our hearts, ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate something we may have been unwilling to face. What about the thoughts and intents of our hearts? Have we put down another inside, saying something or doing something which will build us up and put another down in our own eyes like Toad did with Frog? The human heart is complex, and it's so easily able to deceive itself. But if you ask him who sees and knows all, he will reveal that with a gentle grace. And if we ask for forgiveness, he's faithful and just and will forgive and cleanse us. Let's cut off those poison streams before they do greater damage. We'll end with considering Jesus the perfect example of what kingdom life looks like in a human being. During his life, he was reviled, abusively insulted, and yet Peter says in the first letter that he wrote, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. In fact, we know his very last words concerning those who mocked and made fun of him, treating him like a nothing. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Look at all we have done to insult and degrade God, to try to cut him down to size, to a God we could manipulate who would give us what we want. He'd have every right to condemn us, to make us pay the full price of judgment. But no, Jesus came to make right the relationship with God we've broken. Listen to his own words. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. The one who said, you shall not murder, becoming himself the victim of murder. So that we who were his enemies could be made right with God, and that's God's kind of retaliation, the kingdom's kind of retaliation, the kingdom's deep righteousness. If you haven't yet believed in Jesus, please turn to him today and make things right between him and you by responding to his gift of forgiveness, love, and life. Let's pray. Lord, what shall we say to all this? Grant, Almighty God, that the words we've heard this day with our ears may, through your grace, be so grafted inwardly in our hearts that they may bring forth in us the fruit of kingdom life to the honor and praise of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. First question. Did you have any new thoughts about murder and anger after examining Jesus' words more closely? Second. To paraphrase Willard, what kind of thought life, what kind of habits of body and mind would a person nurture, and what kind of choices would a person make to be someone who quickly makes things right with another? Discuss that. Third, can you share about a time when you responded to the Spirit and sought reconciliation with someone? Now, avoid using any names or details that would give away the particulars. How did that go? What did you learn? Fourth, Take some quiet moments to ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart and alert you if you've harbored anger toward another or offended someone. And fifth, pray for one another.